Welcome to the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Dr. Christine Ball, and today I'm interviewing Professor David Scott. David is the Director of the Department of Anaesthesia and Acute Pain Medicine at St Vincent's Hospital. He has a special research interest in cognitive outcomes after anaesthesia and surgery, and especially delirium. David, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today about the important issue of perioperative cognitive function. First, let's talk about nomenclature. So there was an important document published in the BJA last year, specifically around the issue of nomenclature, which you were involved with. Can you tell us about that document and why it was needed? Thanks, Chris. Um, I think people have been aware for a long time that neurocognitive disorders in the form of post-operative cognitive dysfunction, or POCD, is a real thing. Mm -hmm. It's been established with a number of studies over the last 30 years that there are patients who do not um, fully recover their cognitive capacity or even deteriorate significantly over the months, many months after surgery and, and often in, in acute phase as well. The big problem is that POCD is a research diagnosis. Okay. It is simply a diagnosis made through the application of a range of neuropsychological tests and when those tests fail a certain number of criteria, POCD is attributed. Mm -hmm. Therefore, all sorts of um, complex things were happening in the literature. There were people who were using multiple definitions of POCD, using different tests, different thresholds, different criteria for decline, and measuring at different time points, um, sometimes even up to over seven years after anaesthesia and surgery, measuring these tests in comparison with baseline and saying, oh, this is POCD, newly diagnosed seven and a half years after. So, so we formed a group um, with uh, a large range of specialist anaesthetists, uh, geriatricians, psychologists uh, ar from around the world and decide in the, in the process of deciding that we needed to actually align POCD with a clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And that's what um, this nomenclature paper is all about. It's basically saying um, using the DSM-5 criteria, the Diagnostic and Psychological Manual for uh, Psychiatric Conditions and Psychological Conditions, uh, definitions for mild neurocognitive disorder and major neurocognitive disorder, uh, and applying them to the perioperative assessment period. It's really, it's really a milestone. Okay. So instead of this range of diagnoses of POCD, which you get in the literature, you can't necessarily compare one study with another. Um, the new criteria, the new um, nomenclature we're proposing, uh, having published it simultaneously in six journals mm -hmm. uh, uh, in 2018, which is a major achievement, um, to have these, these criteria used in both clinical care and in research care. If you want to add in further research criteria, fine, but these form, if you like, the foundation of it. And these diagnoses, um, I can go through them if you like, just in framework. Yeah, just a framework would be good. Okay, so um, the first is uh, that in the immediate post-operative period, say, certainly uh, delirium is a, is a phenomenon, mm -hmm. and we're recommending that delirium have a qualifier called post-operative. So it's not saying it's because of the operative period, but it's occurring in the post-operative yep. period. So delirium is a very real entity. It's been around for a long time in terms of diagnostic criteria, and we're recommending that they be adopted and applied. Mm -hmm. If not delirium, and someone uh, has some deterioration of cognitive function within the first 30 days or the expected period of, of recovery, if you like, from anaesthesia and surgery, we will call that delayed neurocognitive recovery. Mm -hmm. 
On the other hand, if beyond that time, and say typically up to 12 months, so three and 12 months, um, if someone uh, met the criteria for neurocognitive dysfunction, uh, as in the DSM-5, mild or major, then we would attribute that diagnosis. And the, there are four broad elements to those. So the first is um, a decrease in, so mild neurocognitive de decline mm -hmm. would be uh, in a patient who had a less, one or less than, between, sorry, between one and two standard deviations uh, decline in a appropriate neuropsychological test. They would have a memory complaint, so a subjective memory complaint mm -hmm. or a complaint from a relative or carer or their doctor. And they would have um, some degree of, uh, or preservation of their activities of daily living. And it would not be due to some other things such as a stroke or okay. some other being in intensive care, being ventilated and sedated. Mm. So that's mild. And that equates to, um, it's not a diagnosis of, but it equates to the level of dysfunction, say, with mild cognitive impairment, which is the, one of, those, one of the, the key neurocognitive diagnoses which has a higher risk of proceeding to uh, dementia. Then there's major neurocognitive dysfunction, mm -hmm. major NCD, and that is uh, a impairment of greater than or equal to two standard de deviations on a standard neuropsychological test is appropriate, impairment of activities of daily living to some extent, and uh, again, a subjective complaint and not attributed to anything else. The final point I'd like to make is that the um, diagnosis as a new event mm -hmm must be made within 12 months to be attributed post-operative. Okay. After 12 months, you make the new diagnosis. It's just whatever would be happening in the mm -hmm. community anyway, NCD. And remembering that all these criteria are referenced to either norms, mm -hmm. so the test decline is either based on normative data or on the base, patient's baseline. Yes, of course. Okay, so if someone presents to a pre-operative clinic with, for semi-elective <coughs> surgery, and they just mentioned they have increasing memory loss and forgetfulness, which is quite a common thing. Is this something we should be taking seriously? I think it is. And I, I think the perioperative community is starting to take this more seriously as well. Because if someone does have pre-existing cognitive impairment of some sort prior to having anaesthesia and surgery, they're at greater risk of delirium in the post-operative mm -hmm. period and, and at greater risk of longer-term cognitive impairment um, NCD or pre previously POCD. So a subjective complaint, which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. is now a criteria of, of the new diagnostic criteria or component of the new diagnostic criteria. But um, it's only the beginning, isn't it? And mm -hmm. most many people will say, oh, look, I've got a bit of a memory problem. Yeah. You know, I'm always forgetting. I never remember people's names. And yes. they forget that actually 20 years ago, they're also ho always hopeless yes. at remembering people's yeah. names. So. Um, that's a, that's a start of a conversation. It's in and of itself, it's not necessarily the whole thing, as I've mentioned, you need these criteria. Yep, okay. So in that patient, is there any preoperative testing indicated? If they say they've, they've got a memory complaint and it's been, it's been increasing, it, it's worth, if we have the resources, and not all, not all of us have those resources, including time, to do a simple cognitive assessment, such as a MOCA, Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many around. We don't need to go through the details of all no. of them, but they're, they're simple enough to apply. They usually only take you know, five minutes or so to do. Patient, they mostly can be done with either with the assistance of a, a nurse or even sometimes on their own by patients. Okay. And we're, they're now computerized being, forms being developed, but they're not widely out there. So a simple test such as the MOCA um, can be used as a screening test. 
People talk about a mini-mental state examination, mm -hmm. and the problem with the mini-mental state examination, it, it is, um, if, it's, if it's significantly impaired, it's a good predictor of the presence of, of um, dementia, mm -hmm. but it's not good at, at picking subtle decline, yeah. subtle memory decline. So it's not very sensitive or specific for mild cognitive impairment or mild NCD. So it's a tricky area to discuss with patients in a limited amount of time in a preoperative clinic. Do you address cognition as a matter of course in your preoperative assessment? Not as a matter of course. Um, if it's an older patient uh, having major surgery, um, then it would come up as part of a conversation that you may experience some confusion after the operation. Uh, we'll do our best to minimise that. Um, do you have any concerns about this? It's a particularly important part of a conversation to have with family and relatives as well. Mm. On the other hand, if someone's got a identified higher risk factors, so they've, they've got a demonstrable memory cognitive impairment already, or they've had pre-existing, uh, they've had a prior episode of delirium mm -hmm. after anaesthesia and surgery, they're at significantly high risk. And often their family or themselves are quite concerned about it okay. and they raise it with you. Um, so it's a, an important question, I think, for our, us talking to our older patients is, have you, had any, have you any concerns with your memory? Have you ever had any episodes of confusion? Just to get those questions out there um, and, and start that conversation if they feel they want to. Mm. Uh, interestingly enough, um, we do some diagnostic work for Alzheimer's clinics mm -hmm. and we'll do, say, lumbar punctures for measuring biomarks, things like that. And those patients can come to you and you can have a chat with them and you think they're fine. Yeah. Until their partner comes in Yes. and starts correcting them for all the omissions they've yes. made in giving you their medical history. Yeah. So it is easy if you don't ask specific questions or you don't have the uh, information from, say, a partner or their medical carer or whoever, um, it is easy to miss cognitive impairment. So we do a lot of routine testing. Do you think there's a place for routine testing for major surgery? And... Routine testing uh, is something which should really be applied with a bit of Bayesian <laughs> philosophy so that you would identify the higher, those at higher risk, higher prior probability. Uh, so that's older patients yes. uh, and patient, or patients who give you those historical pieces of information that already got a memory complaint, already got a, a known memory complaint, maybe they've been to a memory clinic, um, maybe they've got a diagnosis or they've had a prior episode. Um, then you've got your higher risk patients, say the most high risk would be an elderly patient having an emergency surgery such as a fractured neck of femur repair. Mm -hmm. So would you do it routinely? Uh, I would advocate that we should be moving towards doing it routinely in, in all patients over 65. Mm -hmm. And what about particular surgeries, so someone who's going to be on bypass? Well, this all started with cardiopulmonary bypass. Mm. You know, the, the idea of, of, of psychological and psychiatric conditions after surgery was, was Pamela Shaw's paper in mm. way back in the 80s. And uh, even before that, there was some suggestion that delirium and confusion could occur after anaesthesia and surgery. But really, the focus went on to cardiac surgery. And look, to be fair, at three months, there probably is no difference in, in, those, in, in outcomes between cardiac surgery uh, and minor and major other procedures. Mm -hmm. However, within the first week, the intensity and severity of the surgery is more likely to create cognitive decline, and as measured previously by POCD, and delirium is much more common. So if, if you measure delirium, if you actually go to the trouble of measuring delirium 
testing for delirium frequently in the post-operative period after cardiac surgery, you'll, you'll get upwards of 40% of patients, of older patients, having delirium, at least at one time. So let's just talk about that. How do you test for delirium? Delirium is a formal diagnosis, uh, and there are, there are four key criteria for delirium. So that includes um, you know, a, fluctuating, a fluctuating course of the condition, a disturbance in attention, and either or a change in conscious state or a, or a change in thinking, so confusion. Uh, and there are numerous, uh, there are a number of formalized tests like the confusion assessment method or CAM is widely used. And that's probably the re reference one that was developed by Sharon Inouye in the United States. There is a, uh, an ICU version of that for intubated patients where you show them little flashcards mm -hmm. and things like that and get them to remember uh, or not, as the case may be. Uh, uh, but that's takes time to administer. You need a trained administrator to do that, in, and um, it's not practical for post-operative mm -hmm. use. So the next, there are other forms such as the 3D CAM, which is a three-minute version of that, which checks against those criteria, and that's what we use commonly in our research. Again, I think it's a bit too much for routine ward use. Yep. Uh, so there are, then there's a four-question screening test called the 4AT, which you can apply um, with minimal training for nurses. You still need training because you still need to be able to detect mm -hmm. behavioural changes, differences in conscious state and so forth, which can be both, and I think it's really important to point out, that can be both hypoactive or hyperactive. So mm. we all remember the patient who's wild and pulling out all their drips yes. and stuff like that. Um, that's perhaps a quarter to a third of cases of delirium. Majority of cases of delirium are patients who are quiet, mm. but off with the fairies. Mm. You know, they might be able to carry on a bit of a conversation with you, but they're not remembering what's going on. Um, they may, they're the ones who will get up in the middle of a light night and not call the nurse when they're told to call the nurse. Mm. They'll forget to do their deep breathing and physio exercises, and that's why they get more complications. So should we have a delirium score along with a pain score as part of our post-operative assessments? Uh, I think in high-risk patients, uh, at least once daily delirium screening would should be done, mm -hmm. and it's certainly in intensive care, uh, and certainly in the higher risk population that we're talking about. We're just starting to do some research now, looking at delirium state at discharge, okay. and without preempting any any results, there are there is a proportion of patients who test positive for delirium at the time of elective hospital discharge, which is a concern. Well, yes. Um, which gets me back to the question I left out before. At what point, if you do do preoperative testing, you know, just a quick five-minute test, at what point are you going to say, actually, this patient's not fit to consent themselves for surgery? In memory, in yeah. memory testing? Yeah. Um, so this isn't the way one would assess for legal capacity. Mm -hmm. And we can't, at this stage, use any of these, these tests or assessments to define legal capacity. So we rely on what the patients come in, in with mm -hmm. from the community. And if they've followed the normal trajectory, it's really not possible to say, well, I can't consent you because you've, mm -hmm. you've got overt dementia. Um, on the other hand, if you're with the partner and they know that, that the patient's got um, some form of cognitive impairment, you'd want to make sure that you are co-consenting, if mm -hmm. you like. Mm -hmm. I think that's a reasonable pathway, but we can't these sort of tests, at the, unless you send a patient off for a formal psychogeriatric assessment, mm -hmm. uh, which, is a, which is the best way to do it, or their mm -hmm. GP's already done it, mm -hmm. uh, we can't define capacity to consent. Okay. So your preoperative assessment reveals some mild neurocognitive impairment. What can you then do during the perioperative period to minimise their problems? 
So at the moment, um, we really, everyone, we're really focusing on delirium, mm -hmm. reduction in delirium as, a, as an acute event postoperatively. There's not a lot we can say which we could change to modify postoperative cognitive dysfunction or neurocognitive decline at three or, by three or six months or 12 okay. months. Um, probably the same things do because delirium is associated with yep. later neurocognitive decline. So focusing on delirium, uh, the first step is obviously to have a conversation with the, both the patient but also their carers and their relatives uh, to uh, make, and, and if they're at very high risk, the most important thing is familiar, familiar environment. Mm -hmm. So structuring a familiar environment which includes a familiar face, having relatives available in the post-operative period, even in PACU if they're mm -hmm. an older patient who's had a previous experience, so they're very high risk, uh, orienting to time and place. So clocks on the walls, mm -hmm. constantly reinforcing with the patients what's going on, why they're there. And it's not just once a shift, it's like every time you meet them. Mm. Uh, also providing sensory aids, making sure they've got their glasses, they've got their hearing aid, they can hear, mm. you know, and their dentures, so they can speak and, and you can understand what they're saying. Uh, then there's a range of, and, and there is evidence now, there's a, there's a elder help program which is uh, been, had a, which is an integrated package of, of perioperative care for patients um, who are at risk of delirium. And that has demonstrated in the United States that these sort of bundles of care can reduce delirium uh, by a, a third to a 40%. Mm. Uh, so other things to do, of course, are to um, avoid polypharmacy, mm -hmm. so reduce medication load, uh, avoid anticholinergic medications perioperatively, uh, avoid dehydration, so maintain hydration. Um, catheters and tubes mm. trigger delirium, so there are risk factors and there are triggers. Um, it's not always possible to avoid all these things. Sure. Um, the, the other issue is pain management, sure. and pain management's a challenge because opioids are known to be factors which aggravate delirium or increase the risk of delirium, yet denying patients effective analgesia sure. aggravates and, and can potentiate mm. delirium. So the answer is, you know, a smooth perioperative period with appropriate pain control, you, ideally not using opioids or minimising opioids. Uh, and we're all familiar with multimodal mm -hmm. analgesic strategies. Obviously, regional analgesia is good and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as uh, other drugs are concerned, benzodiazepines, of course, are a trigger. Medazolam, in particular, is associated with uh, delirium in a dose-related related way. Um, and then comes the anaesthesia. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about perioperative medicine here, so we might leave the anaesthesia for another time. But just as a last question, if you have no suspicion, but then the patient becomes acutely delirious postoperatively, does that warrant further follow-up post-discharge? I believe it does. So the data, the data that uh, we have now suggests that patients who have an episode of delirium uh, may recover back to their baseline cognition within you know, the first few weeks after anaesthesia and surgery, but then by 12 months to three years, suffer a worse decline than those who never had an episode of delirium. Now the question is, is that cognitive, later cognitive decline just because delirium was a marker of sure. uh, deterioration or actually was it a, did it damage the brain? Mm. And I think we need to think of delirium uh, more as an episode of like we would think of heart failure. Mm -hmm. An episode of heart failure can damage the heart. It can mm -hmm. lead to some degree of global myocardial damage, which makes them more prone to later heart failure. So uh, delirium, brain failure, can lead to an increased risk of delayed uh, dysfunction. So at le in the least, 
delirium should be notified to the family. An episode of delirium diagnosed in hospital should be referred to their, their family practitioner, their community uh, doctor, uh, and it should be in their discharge summary. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it would be nice if we had psychogeriatric capacity to refer patients who had delirium all the time mm -hmm. to psychogeriatric. We don't have that at the moment, but you know it's being demonstrated, isn't it, in mm. the orthogeriatric pathways. If you do have that level of intervention, you probably can do things better and you can modify patients' treatment pathways with all those things that I mentioned to try and maintain their level of cognitive organisation such that they don't get the acute mm. confusional state and delirium. So, so we have got no magic cure, um, but yes, to answer your question specifically, we should. Um, mm. We should be notifying that it's occurred mm -hmm. um, and therefore we would hope that uh, in the longer term people would realise that was a flag for uh, further, further follow-up and care. Mm. In the same way as if you had an episode of acute pulmonary edema in hospital, that should be on the discharge summary, the GP should be notified, and again, that should be a, a flag mm. for a further recovery. Okay. Now, I have no further questions, but do you have anything else you'd like to mention? Whilst we've discussed consent from the point of view of capacity to consent, we haven't discussed whether we should consent patients mm -hmm. uh, for the potential risk of perioperative cognitive impairment and or delirium. So patients, older patients having, major, having surgery and anaesthesia have a, for, from the POCD point of view, have probably got about 10% chance at three months of having some degree of residual cognitive impairment. Probably most of that's gone in most patients by 12 months. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to pull together the threads of evidence of whether who's going to persist and whether delirium is, is one of the key factors which would, which would lead to that. But think about it, delirium is occurring in between 20 and 40, maybe even 50% of, of older patients having anaesthesia and surgery with hospitalisation. It's the most common mm. perioperative complication that we have. And no one is consenting for it. No. And I don't mean consent by, please give me permission to yeah. give you delirium. <laughs> it's say, look, it's by the way, um, you need to be aware that there is a risk of you know, confusion after surgery. Uh, which may be may be milder, it may be major, and uh, we'll do our best to minimise it. But um, you know, do you have any questions about that? The reason for the consenting is not um, you know if if a patient experiences it, it's not going to make them feel better whilst they're experiencing it. But afterwards, it does validate that experience. So mm -hmm. they realise it's I'm I'm not a freak. I'm not abnormal. My brain's not falling apart. Um, and it also is very helpful for their relatives who may need to you know, support them during that time. Relatives don't know any, any more than the patients know no, um, how to deal with it or what to expect with this. So in terms of um, that side of consent, I think we should be certainly informing patients about the risks. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, really Chris. appreciate it.